0: Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com.
1: This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Good morning and welcome to Inside School Food, the space for shop talk among progressive professionals working in and around K-12 food service. I'm Laura Stanley. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about a study that made national headlines when it was released just last Monday. Um, It's the latest one from the Harvard School of Public Health, and the first to systematically assess what happens when school food service staff collaborate with a professional chef on menu redesign. When we posted news of the study on the Inside School Food Facebook page, also last Monday, we got more than 550 views within the first couple of hours, and, and after that we stopped counting. The views are still piling up by the hundreds. So we thought, mm, you guys are really interested in this one, so today we bring you more of the story from the two people who led the work. Uh, Dr. Juliana Cohen, who is the lead author on the study, is a research fellow in the nutrition department at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, Some listeners will remember that Juliana, uh, from from last June, when she joined Inside School Food to talk about another study that was also very much in the news, um, and that one was about the impact of stricter nutrition standards on consumption and food waste. Uh, Chef Nick Spiros um, has had a long and stellar career in Boston Fine Dining before joining Project. Read uh, more recently, he decided to transform to, uh, or rather, transition to education. He was studying to get his teaching license when he received at the offer to work with children as a chef. With Project Bread um, and a little bit about Project Bread, um, it's based in East Boston, Massachusetts, and it's a statewide anti-hunger organization serving people of all ages, cultures, and walks of life. Project Bread's schools-based projects include a chefs to school uh, chefs in schools program in Boston and three other districts in the region. And it was this program that attracted the Harvard researchers and the studies. Co-founder, which is the Arabella um, Insurance Foundation. So, Juliana and Nick, thank you so much for joining us on such short notice today. Thank you so much for having us. So, it was Juliana, yeah. So, Juliana, I'd like to start with you. Um, there are a couple of ways in which this study is a first, which I think explains much of the excitement around it. You want to unpack that a little bit? Sure.
1: So this is the first long-term study to examine both a chef-based initiative as well as choice architecture, and this uses environmental modifications to nudge students towards healthier food choices in schools. And these initiatives are similar to those promoted by Michelle Obama's Chef Moves to School initiative, as well as the Smarter Lunchroom Movement, which uses this choice architecture techniques and is already in over 15,000 schools
2: nationwide. Right. And I should just clarify for listeners that when we say choice architecture, I'm glad you mentioned Smarter Lunchrooms movement. We've actually done an episode on that on on Inside School Food. By that we mean the kind of interventions um, at the point of uh, sale, moving the food around so kids notice it differently, uh, presenting it more attractively, giving it uh, appealing names, that that kind of thing.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, yeah.
2: And then the, the third thing that's a first about this study is that there's actually a new cookbook for K-12 through that came out of the project. Nick, can you just tell us briefly like, what, what that's about and what's in it?
3: Yeah. So we have a lot of different ideas that we had used either during the school um, visits with the kids in, in the cafeterias and also that we had asked for from a few other school districts from around the, the state to participate in that. So we got a bunch of other uh, cafeteria staff and other chefs that may be working with, uh, with other schools as well. So it's been pretty amazing with that.
2: Right. It's a big, fat cookbook full of new recipes. Um, so, Juliana, t- tell us, you know, how the study, it went for two years. Um, tell us when, when you did it. Um, and, yes, yeah, let's start with that. When and where was this conducted?
1: Sure. So this study took place through the 2011-2012 school year in 14 elementary and middle schools in two urban low-income school districts. And this was a very large study. We examined data from over 2,600 students in grades 3 through 8. And on average, the students were about 11-year-old, year and they ranged from about 8 to 16 years.
2: Mm-hmm. So... It was over the course of two years. Is that correct?
1: This is over the course of one school year, so 2011-2012 school okay,
2: year. Okay. So it was. So you were you were studying um, consumption in these uh, schools before the new nutrition standards went into place. So does that would you say undermine your conclusions in any way, or were you working with the standards as as they were anticipated they would go into effect in 2012? So
1: this- Yeah, this did not undermine the study results at all. In fact, I think that it made them all the more important because now with the new U.S. school meal standards, there's been concerns about plate waste in these schools. And what our study found is a really important way to decrease plate waste to get students to eat more of the healthy meals. And we found that largely this was due to the chef's creating these healthier but more palatable school meals the students really enjoyed.
2: Okay, we'll get to that in a minute, but first I just want to establish what kind of districts we're talking about. What was the, um, your sort of in general, the, the free reduced rate and the demographic of the kids?
1: So generally speaking, this was a low-income school district, so roughly 90% of the students were eligible for free and reduced meals. Okay, and largely, it was a a largely Hispanic population in these schools.
2: Okay, and outside of Boston, right? That's correct. Okay, Um, so, and the methodology for measuring what they what was going on was your basic plate waste uh, study, right?
1: That's correct. We use the gold standard, and what we do is we measure exactly what every single student. Selected and consumed. So we go in, we get baseline measurements of the food before they're provided to the students and we weigh them. So we know what they weigh on average before students have consumed them. Then we have research assistants waiting online. They see what the students have selected and record that. And then at the end of the meal, when students are done eating, we collect the trays and we weigh every remaining item on the tray. So we can tell you the exact percentage of every food item that was consumed.
2: Okay. Now this study has a pretty complicated structure. Um, there's, you know what, I'll let you talk about it Because it's, 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 it's <laughs> reading yes. the study I understand it completely But um, you, you can sum it up best
1: This is really complicated So first we went in and we measured baseline selection and consumption In all the schools before any changes were made Then four of the schools were randomized to receive the professional chef So the chef worked with the school to create these healthier, more palatable meals Now, after the schools had had these chefs for three months, we then went back and we measured selection and consumption again in both the chef schools as well as the control schools, the schools that continued to receive the standard meals. Mm -hmm. And this allowed us to look at the short-term impact of a chef. Then half of the schools, so two of them, received an additional component that we called the Smart Cafe. Now, that's the choice architecture that we talked about before, the environmental Mm -hmm. modifications. Additionally, four of the control schools received the Smart Cafe component as well. So that means we had some schools with only a chef, some schools with only the Smart Cafe, and then we had schools with both the chef and the Smart Cafe, as well as some schools that remained controls receiving the, school, the standard school meals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So after an additional four months, we collected plate waste again. And this enabled us to look at the long-term impact of a chef since the schools had now had chefs for seven months as well as the extended daily exposure to the choice architecture component, because these schools had now had the chef Ar- the choice architecture for four months, where they received it daily, plus the ability to look at the combined effect of both the chef and the smart cafe intervention.
2: Okay, I, I think that's pretty clear. Now let's talk about what did you discover between the uh, combination this uh, of choice architecture intervention um, and. Uh, changed menus, them separately, as well as the short-term and the long-term. Let's talk about what came out of all this.
1: Yeah, so this is really interesting. After three months of exposure to the chef intervention, so the short-term impact, Mm -hmm. the odds of vegetable selection significantly increased in the chef schools, but there was no impact on consumption. So the short-term impact was we got kids to take more vegetables, but we weren't able to increase their consumption yet. Mm -hmm. When we looked long-term, after seven months of exposure, we saw that students were significantly more likely to select fruits and vegetables in both the chef schools as well as the Smart Cafe schools. But interestingly, consumption only increased in schools that had a chef component to
2: it. That is a very surprising finding, Um, given all the excitement we have around uh, the smarter lunchroom type intervention. It seems that you did establish that it affects children selecting healthier foods, but not necessarily eating them. If you want them to eat them, they need to taste really good.
1: That's exactly right. So choice architecture strategies are a good start. But to get kids to eat more of the healthier foods and reduce plate waste, we need to focus on the taste of the foods.
2: Right, right. So, Nick, you you were there in the trenches observing student reaction to what, you know, to what was going on. I mean, do the data reflect what you were seeing happening from month to month over the course of the year?
3: You know, if, if that was the trenches, I'd rather be in the trenches every day than anywhere else, okay. so I have to say that. <laughs> okay. um, so, yeah, I totally did. You know, we could see these kids really being interested in what and what we were doing, you know, asking a lot of questions, because typically we were right there on the serving lines, as much as some of these schools were larger. They had multiple serving lines, but as much as we could. Uh, and we would go out into the cafeteria and really talk to the kids. And, and honestly, a lot of times getting a couple of sort of the key cool kids, so to speak, to try something mm-hmm. was really what made all the difference in the world because a lot of it's, you know, we all don't remember what it's like to be, uh, you know, a 12 or 11 or 10-year-old kid. If your peers are eating, you're more likely to eat it as well, which is kind of strange. But, I mean, I guess that carries over to adulthood too, right?
2: <laughs> right, right. Um, so, I, 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 J- Juliana, I, you know, despite what you say about the um, kind of greater impact of menu redesign as opposed to, to um you know, the, the choice architecture. Are, are you suggesting that we not continue to pursue choice architecture as a solution in cafeterias?
1: I think that choice architecture is a great start, and schools should not abandon these strategies. Mm-hmm. But to really have the largest impact, we really need to invest in the palatability of the school foods.
2: Right. Okay. Um, I'd like to pause here for a brief station break, and when we come back, I'm going to hear um, a little bit more from Chef Nick about um, his view from behind the stoves and the schools involved in the study. Um, You're listening to Inside School Food. Today's conversation is about the new study from the Harvard School of Public Health and Project Bread about the impacts of chef support in school kitchens.
0: Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital where the art of living well is defined and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care, fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, or stop by Napa County's Official Visitor Information Center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com.
2: Welcome back to Inside School Food. If you follow headlines in school food, you know about the study from the Harvard School of Public Health that was such big news last week. The findings that kids are enthusiastic about healthy food when it's prepared with skill and care were surely not surprising to any school food service professional who is preparing healthy food with skill and care. But we all know that data speaks louder than anecdotes. So the data set from this project is welcome indeed. Um, uh, you know, before we go to, to Nick, Juliana has a couple of questions I, I failed to ask in the first half, and, and that is um, some of the differences you observed in, um, you know, you, you were looking at three categories, vegetable consumption, entree consumption, and fruit consumption. Um, can you just break down, like, how how those patterns changed over the course of the study? Because you saw more jumps in some areas than others and so forth.
1: That's correct. So overall, we didn't find large impacts on entree selection or consumption. We found that, generally speaking, students selected an entree, and that would be your um, meat or meat alternative and your grain, mm-hmm. and typically combined. Um, But where we found large differences was with the fruit as well as the vegetable consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the chef arm, we found that students consumed significantly more of these as well as selected more of these. Um, So overall, their diets substantially improved. Interestingly, though, we also looked at milk selection and consumption, Mm -hmm. and we were hoping to see that the the choice architecture might nudge students towards the healthier white milk. We found that this actually did not occur. So this to us suggests that schools may want to consider policies that limit the sugar-sweetened milk since the choice architecture was not an effective strategy to limit chocolate milk.
2: Right. And when we say choice architecture around the milk, that that means – pushing the sweetened milk to the back of the case or putting out less of it, that kind of thing, right?
1: That's exactly right.
2: Right, right. Um, and, and the other thing I, I just want to make clear, that when you say that the entree consumption didn't increase, that's actually good news because the entrees were changing. So what that reflects is that the kids were not rejecting the changed entrees. They were consuming them with the same at the same level they had been before, which was pretty high to start with, right?
1: That's exactly right. So, our chefs have been working with the schools to incorporate more whole grains, less sugar, less salt. So, this was actually a big win to see that students were accepting of these healthier foods.
2: Right. So, Nick Spiros, you were the lead chef on the Project Bread side of this um, project. Uh, who else worked with the, uh, you uh, and the food service staff, at the schools?
3: In the schools, you mm-hmm. mean, or the other chefs?
2: Right. I mean, who else from Project Bread, or was oh, it so, just Oh, so you? from
3: Project Bread, there was uh, two other chefs, Guy Copy mm-hmm. and Kirk Conrad. Kirk Conrad's been working for Project Bread in, in the um, Boston School District for several years. He was sort of like the forerunner, I guess, of of this pr- kind of project. Right. And, so it was, and, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, and, and how much did the um, School Food Service staff see of you guys? How often did you visit each site during the duration of the study?
3: I was there, so I was working in different schools five days a week, and I tried to hit. We sort of we had the schedule of every few months going through. So I would see a school, one specific school, for three months, one day a week, mm-hmm. and then we'd rotate to a different set of schools. Right. Uh, and
2: yeah. go ahead.
3: That's all. Yeah, I was going to, and so Guy Copy he went to a, he was there a couple days, and and so wasn't Kirk. So I was in the schools more than the other two guys because they had other responsibilities in other district.
2: Right, right. So they were seeing a lot of you, but it wasn't every day. They were mostly on their own with us.
3: Yeah, I would say so, yeah. I mean, we, we had, I always had an open line of communication with them. I told them my call-in hours were between 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. That's Right,
2: it. <laughs> okay. yeah, right, right. So how, how did you work with them? You know, how did you initiate the relationship and introduce the project goals? You know, it's, this is a lot. You know, looking at the cookbook, you were, you were really asking a lot of them. So how, how did that work out?
3: Yeah, so it was. It, there were some times where it was pretty rough, to tell you the truth. Uh, there were a few folks who just didn't want to buy into it, but there was a couple that really were just stellar. You know, they really took this under their wing. And one of the schools that was a school that was amazingly bare bones. It had an oven and um, a food warmer, and it had a, a, a hot water dispenser. And we were able to make some of these. Some of these recipes came directly from that school which really is surprising because we just sort of use the ingenuity of my skills as a professional chef and her skills as being a you know a cafeteria worker and cafeteria manager for over 20 years.
2: Yeah, yeah. So when you say these were challenging recipes, give me an example of a recipe that has a lot of steps and called for a lot of new techniques that were not familiar to them.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that we did was uh, I was trying to see if we can work out a different kind of sloppy joe recipe that was really from scratch. And, and I'm not a big into hiding vegetables in the food, mm-hmm. but I found that if we ground, we ground up a lot of carrots and a lot of fresh veggies and even mushrooms um, and put those in there, and you didn't even notice the flavor difference, which was really cool because the, the, we used real ground beef, and that really sort of, you know, those other vegetables absorbed the flavor. So that was one of my favorites, and that really was a huge success with the kids. And... Um, and another one was we. I tried a lot of different vegetables because I'm big on trying to get the kids to eat veggies because mm-hmm. I think enough. A lot of us don't eat enough vegetables at home. So I made um, a really nice homemade salsa, which was sort of combining fresh ingredients with some of the dry. I mean, the, the, some of the canned ingredients that they had already had gotten from the government. Mm-hmm. And my favorite was probably the the cumin roasted broccoli that I, that we did. We just just tossed some broccoli florets with some oil, salt. Ground cumin and a little bit of orange zest, or I I would tell the kid, the the ladies, you know, you don't have to use this because it's a pain in the neck sometimes. And I have sort of pie in the sky ideas as a chef, so. Mm -hmm. But then we just put it onto a sheet pan and roasted off until it was it was crunchy, and the kids really liked it because it was a different take on just that sort of steamed, over steamed vegetable. That they were used to,
2: right? Which, yeah. So, so you had told me this before that you started out with, you know, as as a chef accustomed to a white tablecloth environment. You started off with these kind of ambitious pie in the sky ideas. Talked to the staff and found out that you needed to simplify things. So it sounds like they had to teach you a lot about school food. Oh, of
3: course they did. They yeah. really, ta- they showed me that I need to calm down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I really, you know, when I cook for my kids, I cook with my kids often at home. Um, and we do a lot of you know restaurant style food, and I they expect that when when we're eating dinner together, they're like, well, what's this is all we're having for dinner, you know? So it's kind of funny, but they're they're really you know I, I like that, the idea that they pushed me to to really streamline my thinking because I wasn't in the fine dining restaurant anymore.
2: Right, right, and and I guess that the um, both the the cost or uh, the budget restrictions and the nutrition restrictions must have come as kind of a shock
3: to you at first. It was a little bit, but, to, you know, to tell you the truth, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised working in fine dining that the cost restrictions are amazing, you know, because you're trying to not overcharge everybody but use really beautiful ingredients. So I was really still accustomed to the idea that I needed to really be careful and utilize everything that I was, you know, ha- without having any weight. So it was that wasn't too much of a stretch for me, but it was definitely, a, you know, a new sort of, a new way of looking at things.
2: Right, right. So, so, um, so a big change in the way you prepared the veg. And, and Juliana, um, at the end of the study, what was the percentage jump in vegetable consumption from the beginning?
1: Um, so we found a substantial increase of nearly about 20 percent. Um, actually, rather, um, about so the overall consumption um, was over 30 um, mm-hmm. percent. So this translated to about two and a half servings of vegetables per week.
2: Yeah, that's that speaks a lot and and you were able to do it simply. And I I recommend people take a look at the cookbook to see how that was done. Um so and and then let's look at the entrees, Nick. Um you know, you you mentioned a few um that, that were really popular, but I understand that um, you, you for this particular study, you focused on those that had more of a, a Latino or uh, Mexican tradition behind them because of the demographic of the schools. Yeah, um, a lot
3: of Hispanic folks, definitely. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, you know, kind of simple homey foods in the Mexican tradition, but you had to make them with whole grain, lower fat, and sodium. Did the kids complain about that?
3: We Oftentimes, yeah, I mean, one of the hardest things, and it still is, and this, I positioned this um, with the kids differently, so the whole, uh, the, the, brown, the brown rice, most people aren't used to eating brown rice. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of strange that, you know, that is probably the, the most natural way, to, it is the most natural way to eat the rice, but most of us are so used to eating white rice. So I would tell the kids, listen, this is what you're going to be getting. These regulations aren't changing, so mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you get used to the, the flavor of the brown rice. Because it's not going away. As long as you're in school, this is what you're going to get when you get rice. Right. So, you know, I was very honest with the kids about that and they I think they appreciated that because they they just I saw I saw a lot of kids just eating it. I'm like and and you know, once you get used to the flavor of it, I think it's not so bad because we really jazz it up. You know, we try to make it, you know, Spanish rice, or we make, you know, a Chinese stir fried rice or something like that, you know. So the things that that were fairly familiar they, they were familiar with.
2: Right. The flavors. Right, right. And, and and you told me that when kids came to you and said That's not how my mom makes it. Your answer was (laughs) what...
3: (laughs) I am not your mother. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it's pretty simple. And they just looked at me with shock and awe. And I just was like, I, I don't want to be your mom. I don't I'm not going to cook like your mom. I don't have the same experiences. So don't expect this to happen again. Right. <laughs> and right. it was funny. I got some funny responses, which, you know, I love kids. I love working with kids because they're so honest and I do my best to be as honest with them as possible just as they are with me. So it's a pretty interesting relationship we have.
2: Right, right. <laughs> and 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 I know that part of the the work in this study was um, Kind of getting getting you know at their level and doing tastings um, in advance of menuing the new items uh, you know what what did you do and how did that go over?
3: yeah we made you know usually the first thing that we did was we 'd make a small amount of something and we'd put little samples out either we 'd put it out right on on the serving line or we'd go out to the to the cafeteria depending on the size of the school and just hand samples and then we'd i and the chefs and I would always go out into the into the dining room and talk to the kids and just get their feedback and that was probably the best thing that we could have ever done just mm-hmm. being present with the kids while they were eating it and in in eating it with them because I think I, i've noticed that. You know, one of the things that's missing in the cafeterias is it's just the kids go, there's a few aides sort of linger, lumbering around, saying, hanging out and watching them eating, mm-hmm. and nobody, there are no adults sitting with them and, and having the conversation, which I think is amazing. Like, think about Sunday dinners or something like that with your family. I, re, I grew up on a couple nights a week, even, even in high school, eating dinners a couple nights a week with my family. And those really made a huge difference in my life. So I think just that impact of sitting with the kids and asking them, what do you think? And then being ready to hear it tastes like crap or it tastes like whatever. And mm-hmm. then I have, you know, ways of handling that as well, which are very funny and <laughs> maybe inappropriate for talking on the radio about but. <laughs>
2: I'm glad to hear you talk about this because these are details that don't make it into uh, the text of the study, but it's an important backstory and and part of getting that acceptance.
3: It is because you know I I often talk to kids about um, the you know I I always bring my children into the conversation, which really helps, and I often bring in the pediatricians. I say, listen, you know, because we all tend to trust the doctors, you know, and I say the kids, we need. My doctor told me about my kids when I was freaking out that they weren't eating they need to have at least 10 times of 10 exposures to what it is that, that you're doing, the mm-hmm. food you're trying to give them. And that, and really to hit home with the kids because we just tried it once, and next week we're going to try it twice. So we need to keep going. Like this this sort of pattern of continuously Exposing them and exposing yourselves—I would be talking directly to them to different things. It's huge. It's a game changer, you know.
2: Right, and and the study makes that really clear with the way it's designed, um, showing that uh, the less impact in the you know the first half of the year, and a much greater impact uh, at the end after the kids have had so much exposure. So you know what you said to me, Juliana, is that really. You know, confirms what we already knew that you really can't give up after the first two tries. You've got to keep um, exposing kids to the new foods.
1: That's exactly right. Schools should not abandon healthier foods if students initially reject them.
2: Right, right. So, so Nick, you, you were very keen to introduce fresh meat and poultry. It's all over your recipes, and, and that's considered a no-no in many and perhaps even most school kitchens. I mean, how successful were you in convincing food service directors involved in this project to accept raw product for this project?
3: Well, we really talked about price on that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it certainly having us there was easier. You know, we uh, we were there to sort of mind the shop, so to speak. But it, it was a little confusing because all the the, the folks who work in cafeterias are Safe Certified. You know, mm-hmm. which is the certification that we all need to be handling food. Um, so I, I was just pushed that like, we need to teach them, and as opposed to it seems that a lot of folks are just would rather have the absence of that and and just have it easier because they don't they're sort of scared, worried about the, the 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 situation of possibly getting someone sick yes,
2: from from Yes, for very sick, from
3: food yeah. It's a huge thing, but you know, if everyone knows how to if they're trained properly on how to handle everything, there really isn't an issue. I mean, I've been a chef for 25 years and I don't know that anyone's ever gotten food poisoning at one of my restaurants. Do do you
2: think think, now that you're not in those schools, that they're going to continue using raw meat and poultry in those recipes?
3: That's tough to say. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, I would hope so. I really do. But I think certain things, ground beef is certainly easier than getting raw chicken Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there's just less to, you know, there's less Bacteria, sort of right. It's it's and it's a
2: great solution. deal more common than raw raw chicken, right,
0: for sure. Right, So yeah.
3: I would say definitely. We I've seen every time I've gone back, there's always recipes with with raw ground beef, which is awesome. Some of the schools just can't do it. Some of the, the smaller what we would call it barebone schools, they mm-hmm. would just have an oven with no stovetop or something like that. Um, those schools tend to get the pre-cooked stuff just because they really can't. Physically, the the, the right. infrastructure doesn't allow it. Right,
2: an equipment challenge. So you yeah. mentioned you mentioned cost, Nick, which is really important um, and um, something that Juliana has talked a lot about with regard to the study. You know, your cookbook is full of recipes that call for fresh ingredients and lots of extra. Prep time, and even without the raw poultry or meat, you know, these are some of them are pretty involved. You've got recipes that call for house made velote or sofrito as a starting point. You know, a a lot of districts might look at this and say, Wow, it looks more expensive. You know, what would your answer be to that? And Juliana, you could jump in on this one too.
3: I would say that. Yeah, certainly it seems like it, you know. But if you're if you're really training folks how to do things correctly, you know, one of the things that I would always say to them, to the ladies in the in the cafeteria because most of them were women, um, you know, make a ton of sofrito, you know, and then I say I do it at home, and I'm sure you do it at home. Think about the way you cook at home, but then just multiply it by fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, you can make you know five gallon bucket of sofrito and then put it into small containers and freeze it, so that way every time you need it. You grab what you need from the freezer, and it's there. You don't have to continuously make. So I, I, I really introduced that sort of idea of, of what we do in restaurants. You need to prep for a couple of days. Don't just make, make a meal for just now. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of what is that's sort of the perpetual thing that's going on, is that they're cooking for today. Right. And you don't, You can never get ahead. It's always important to be ahead. And freezing sofrito or, or making you know, a batch of veloute really isn't that difficult, but you need the confidence to do it, which I think a lot of folks lack.
2: Right. So so, so having you there to support them and making that move forward can be important. Um, Juliana, okay. thoughts about cost uh, involved yeah. in making the change? So I think one of the most
1: important points is that there's this misperception that schools can't afford to collaborate with Chefs. But the reality is that chef skills go beyond just making the food taste better. Um, Nick can comment on this as well, but they also help with inventory control and the more efficient use of food. So food costs can actually go down for these schools. Mm-hmm. And one okay. thing that school districts may want to consider is partnering with other school districts to share a chef because there's the potential for schools to save a substantial amount of money while sharing the cost of the chef's salary.
2: Right, right. Um, so, so, Nick, l- looking ahead, um, do you think the schools, you know, you know, the the raw meat poultry question aside, do you think they can continue to menu your recipes without your help? I mean, there's a certain amount of buzz that happens when a guy in a, you know or, or a gal in a white coat turns up. Um, you know, if you know, what would you like to do going forward if if you had the opportunity with these schools?
3: I think the most important thing, as I always say, is training. You know, they need to be trained, and there needs to be a presence there of somebody like myself or someone who's like-minded. You know, mm-hmm. even of me—not even me. I don't. You know, I don't. I'm not sick looking at myself as someone who needs to be there, but you know, I think that it's important that there's somebody there that that can oversee what's going on because the reality is they're not getting they're not getting paid enough money to to you know have this sort of heaviness that, that all these new regulations are bringing mm-hmm. and all the new prep work is bringing. So if someone's there to help guide them along, I think they can certainly do it. I really hope that it, I, that it sticks, you know, because it's so important. I, I hear people constantly talking to me about this, like, I wish you were in my school. I wish this. I wish that. And, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is we're focusing on, on those who are in the most need right now.
2: Right. Right. I, I, I just like to point out that it's it is really great to have a professionally trained chef. But, I, you know, there are many districts that um, are successfully introducing scratch cooking Absolutely. at the level of your cookbook without that help. I mean, the, 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 the salient thing is care and skill in cooking um, makes the difference. Totally. Um, and Juliana, for you going forward, you know, what kind of research do you think would reinforce your findings um, from this study? So
1: we'd really like to, to replicate these findings now that the standards have gone into effect, um, especially around the selection um, component, because now we think about what the choice architecture, how it helped with the selection of mm-hmm. fruits as well as vegetables. Um, but the new regulations require students to select a fruit or a vegetable. Um, so perhaps schools may want to emphasize more the vegetable component, because previously we found that. Um, students are more likely to select a fruit under these new guidelines. And I think it would also be helpful to look in other type of school districts as well as among high school students to see if we replicate these findings.
2: So, yeah, looking at the older kids would, would be a great um, next thing. Uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Juliana Cohn of the Harvard School of Public Health and Chef Nick Spiros of Project Bread about an important new study that we hope will support the movement towards culinary excellence as a solution in school food. Make it taste good and they'll eat more and waste less. What a beautiful and very common sense idea. So, so thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us.
3: Pleasure is mine.
2: So if you want to read the study, download the cookbook, or just learn more about Project Bread, you'll find links on today's show page on insideschool.com. And if you want to hear more... other episodes on Inside School Food um, about culinary training for school food service workers. Click on food service training in the search box on the main episodes page on Inside School.com. Um, our episodes are also archived on Heritage Radio Network.org iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else fine podcasts are found. This is Inside School Food. Next week, we talk about the other study that's making headlines right now, the latest on plate waste. I'm Laura Stanley, and I'm working hard here to keep you all up to date.